Hi, this is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the National Institute on Aging Impact Collaboratory at Brown University. Welcome to the Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. We're here to give you some extra time with our speakers and ask them the interesting questions that you want to hear most. If you haven't already, we hope you'll watch the full Grand Rounds webinar recording to learn more. All of the companion Grand Rounds content can be found at impactcollaboratory.org. Thanks for joining. Hi, everyone. This is Jill Harrison, Executive Director of the NIA Impact Collaboratory. I'm joined today by three wonderful people, and can I just say powerhouses in health services and long-term care research. Um, Dr. David Grabowski, Professor of Healthcare Policy at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Susan Mitchell, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and Senior Scientist at Hebrew Senior Life. Dr. Vince Moore, Professor of Health Services Policy and Practice at Brown University School of Public Health. And uh, Drs. Mitchell and Moore, your principal investigators of the IMPACT Collaboratory. So thank you so much for joining me today. You're quite welcome. It's our pleasure. Yes, thank you. So this past week, the three of you teamed up for a special Grand Rounds on the topic of COVID-19 in nursing homes and pragmatic research responses to the crisis. Um, this Grand Rounds was so well attended, it was heartwarming um, to see more than 300 plus attendees. Clearly, the impact of COVID in nursing homes is important to folks, um, and there's a great deal of urgency there. You began your Grand Rounds with a very touching uh, moment of silence to really ground us in the heroic efforts of long-term care staff, as well as the, um, the loss and suffering and catastrophic impact that COVID is having on older adults, uh, particularly in congregate living environments like nursing homes. So uh, Dr. Grabowski, I'd like to start with you. You've written about this issue in, in JAMA Insights and been many other places, interviewed in major news, uh, on major news networks. Can you summarize for our listeners why nursing homes are so vulnerable to COVID? Sure. So. Uh... Nursing homes are really ground zero for COVID. Let's start with the obvious. This is where older adults and older adults, more importantly, with chronic illness, disproportionately live. They live in close quarters to one another. So uh, as staff move from room to room, uh, providing high-touch care, remember these are very intimate uh, services that, that caregivers are providing, bathing and dressing and toileting. It's that high-touch care that really defines long-term care, but it also is the reason that this, this virus spreads so quickly within buildings. It's, it's elders with chronic illness living in close quarters with staff kind of caring for all of them. So it's been really challenging to uh, contain this, this virus once it, once it uh, gets started in a building. Thank you for that. And, you know, we've, we've, you've mentioned in the Grand Rounds that um, the virus is spreading in nursing homes in spite of lockdowns. And uh, we've heard about states uh, such as Connecticut, for example, that are dedicating certain nursing homes as COVID-only facilities to help mediate that, that spread. What other innovations are you seeing out there? Sure. So I think the most important innovations, and, it, and it's really not that innovative, it's, it's actually pretty basic, is simple testing. We need uh, widespread testing of all staff and uh, nursing home residents if we're really going to contain this virus. So I think first and foremost, uh, testing is, is step one. But if I could go a little further then, and also uh, not much of an innovation, very basic, but really important is just good old-fashioned infection control. 
Uh, this means washing hands. This means having sufficient personal protective equipment for the staff. Um, you'd, you'd be surprised at how many facilities still lack adequate PPE. So th those are kind of 1A and 1B. The next place I would really look is towards supporting our, our workforce. Um, the staff, as, as you've already mentioned, are incredibly uh, stressed and, and, and challenged, and we need to do uh, more to support them, both in terms of what we pay them, how, how we're valuing them, making certain that they have adequate testing and PPE, but then also um, if they're uh, unfortunately become sick, let's make certain they have paid sick leave and other support such that they can they can get well and and uh, keep keep uh, other staff and and residents at at the facility healthy. So those are those are some things in addition to the kind of COVID specialized facilities that that will really help uh, contain uh, further outbreaks. You know, you mentioned um, the workforce and in particular how it's been decimated in in nursing homes. Uh, the the strain on, uh, for example, certified nursing assistants, the lack of perks um, and protection. What do you? What changes at the policy level do you anticipate coming out of all this in terms of workforce resiliency? I really hope this is a sort of a, a, a change, a, a major change in how we think about these direct caregivers. I think we've undervalued and underpaid them for, for a long time. Uh, this workforce makes close to minimum wage. Uh, they're disproportionately women, uh, disproportionately minority, disproportionately immigrants. And so uh, there, there's, a, there's a real need to um, put a lot more resources into this workforce. So first and foremost, I hope that we're uh, gonna pay them better going forward. And that's something that you know, Vince has actually studied in some of his prior work with wage pass-throughs at the state level. I would love to see us do some federal pass-throughs, wage pass-throughs, where we're providing more dollars to support this this workforce, uh, offering them all the benefits we just mentioned. But then the final point I'd make is, how do we make certain that this profession is actually a ladder towards maybe becoming a licensed practical nurse or an LPN? How, how do we invest in this workforce through education credits and, and really uh, supporting them, not just in their current position, but as, as a way to uh, move up in the nursing workforce? I really want to see us kind of kind of grow this this workforce going forward and, and better pay and better upward mobility are two ways we can do that. Uh, one final question for you before I, I pivot to Drs. Mitchell and Moore. You mentioned that a national uh, reporting system is coming soon. Uh, when is it coming and, and why the delay? So it, it's supposed to be online by the end of the month. So that that's, the, that's everything we're hearing. I, this is really something that should have been online from the beginning. So by national reporting system here, we mean uh, a national system that tells us uh, across every nursing home in the country, how many uh, COVID cases does that facility have among the residents and the staff? And then also how many uh, deaths have occurred on, uh, among, the, among the residents? We need that information, not just for family members who have loved ones in these facilities. Too many family members uh, don't know what's, what's happening in the facilities, but we also need this information from a public health perspective. Uh, researchers like uh, Drs. Mitchell and Moore and myself, we want to study this. We want to learn kind of what's happening around the country in terms of best practices. Uh, if we're going to study this and learn from them and ultimately apply those, those best practices, we need the data. 
and we just simply don't have that data right now. Um, I don't know why, to your question, it, it's been so hard. I think initially um, this was pushed out to the states. Some states were quite good with reporting. Uh, some states weren't. I, I think very quickly the federal government uh, took a lot of criticism and, and I think pivoted here to realize that these are data that need to be national and we need we need greater transparency. So hopefully by the end of the month we, we have those data. I, I will say quickly, we know those data are never going to be perfect. There's a lot of uh, reporting issues from facility to facility, uh, a lot of asymptomatic cases, and that, that's always going to be a challenge. But if we're ever going to try to form like a, a broader sense from a policy perspective of what are we facing here in terms of number of cases and number of fatalities and where, is our, where are our efforts working and not working, we need the data. Well, that's a that's a great segue to Dr. Um, Susan Mitchell in terms of we need some data about what what's working. So, Dr. Mitchell, you shared some of your work and data uh, about a rapid, uh, pragmatic research approach to in response to the COVID crisis. In particular, um, you shared some work about advanced care planning SWAT team at Hebrew Senior Life. Um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the program so that um, folks could replicate it if they're interested? Right. So. Um... Thank you for asking about that, Jill. So the program I introduced um, during Grand Rounds um, took place at the place where I work called Hebrew Senior Life, which is a uh, healthcare organization in Boston that um, does many things. It has a, a number of clinical service lines, including assisted living, independent housing. Uh, but particular to this project, we have about 620 long-term care beds or nursing home type beds in the organization. We're also fortunate that it's got a strong academic mission at Hebrew Senior Life, and so we actually have a research institute embedded into this organization, uh, the Marcus Institute, where I work. Um, and even at the best of times and normal circumstances, advanced care planning and trying to provide care that's goal concordant, in other words, providing care that aligns with what patients and their families want, is a priority in um, all long-term care settings. But this has become especially acute during the COVID-19 crisis because if um, these frail elderly patients get afflicted with COVID-19 um, with, uh, with their number of comorbidities and general fail, uh, frail status, um, they're the most likely to get the sickest and in particular get respiratory distress that would um, bring up the, uh, the possibility of them going to the hospital and being put on a ventilator. Um, and just like they're the likely to get the sickest, they're also the least likely to get any benefit from such aggressive care. So it became very important during COVID-19 for uh, the long-term care population and their families to understand what the course of this disease was, if they were, get, if they were to get it and get very sick, um, what are the risks and benefits of these different types of uh, medical, op uh, medical treatments, and really understanding that if they did get sent to the hospital, they likely would not benefit from the most aggressive care. Um, so we happen to have a, um, a robust palliative care team at Hebrew Senior Life, again, unlike most nursing homes. Um, and this was really, this project was really put forward by the um, director of that services because they had over 600 long-term care residents that they wanted to 
make sure that their advanced directives were up to date and in concordant with what the patients and families want and informed by their the COVID-19 experience. But at first, it just felt like a lot of chaos, so they didn't know where to start. They came to the Marcus Institute. They said, hey, can you help us uh, identify those residents uh, who are most at risk um, for going to the hospital and doing poorly with COVID-19 and then help us track our efforts while we try to um, get um, updated advanced directives on those patients. So what we did is uh, we leveraged the uh, electronic medical record at Hebrew Senior Life and were able to identify all the residents who lacked something called the do not hospitalize order, which is a or- medical order that can be put in the chart that says even if you get acutely ill, they prefer to have their care directed towards comfort and receive care in the nursing home. And so the team felt that those people without DNH orders really were the first people that uh, needed to have a conversation around this with COVID-19. So we leveraged the electronic medical record. We were able to generate those lists, which ended up to be about 300 on April 13th, 354 residents that did not have a do not hospitalize order. And then we automated a system where every day at 8 a.m. we sent out the palliative care team, an ongoing list of remaining residents without DNH orders. And every day they called up their uh, con- their family members and had conversations and chipped away at the list every day to the point where a- as of today, actually, a third of those residents who did not have a DNH order now do have a DNH order. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of places, we've had a lot of uh, deaths at Hebrew Senior Life and some hospital transfers, but no hospital transfers among those uh, who had a DNH order. So that's the program. And that's so impressive um, to hear that, that you have not had folks transferred who have the do not hospitalize order. I think, uh, you know, so often you hear folks saying, unless you come wheeled in with your advanced directive, kind of safety pin to your shirt in the emergency room, it's unlikely sometimes that these advanced care plans can be followed. So it appears that there's some um, hard wiring within your within um, Hebrew senior life to make sure that preferences are honored um, and some great spot, spot checks. Um, you mentioned the fact that the events, the SWAT team emerged as a pragmatic approach um, because it was driven by stakeholder priority, in particular the leader from the palliative care program. Um, what practical advice would you give healthcare systems and researchers to improve their partnerships and relevancy to each other? Yeah, so this was part of the reason I think this program worked so well because it was driven by a, cl- a clear clinical need. So even the little bits of tracking data that we wanted to add to the process of calling families and then recording um, the outcomes of those phone calls. Perhaps in normal circumstances, busy nursing home providers would just find it annoyance to have yet one more piece of tracking or paperwork. But because this really came from a request from this clinical team, they really took it seriously and weren't bothered by the fact that it took another five minutes to fill out some sort of tracking form. So I think the notion that this pragmatic research and pragmatic interventions to truly get into the clinical workflow, any little bits of um, processes that you introduce to implement the intervention to get done and really adhere to has to have some meaning for the people, in this case, the clinical providers implementing it. 
Another really practical piece that actually we could absolutely not have done this project without is some foresight into the programming of our electronic medical record. As I mentioned, we were able to identify people who had a do not hospitalize orders and those that don't in order to create this triage list. And we only had that because someone who created our clinical uh, electronic medical record had the foresight to actually upload items from the MOLST form, the medical orders, life-sustaining treatment form, individually. So they had a field for do not hospitalize, do not resuscitate, um, no intravenous fluids, etc. So each of these were an individual field. So we were, from the research point of view and from the informatics point of view, were easy to, to just simply identify each person who didn't have a DNH order. Most nursing homes and nursing home systems don't necessarily have that standardized method of recording the advanced directives in the um, medical order set. So I think uh, having a lot of foresight into creation, creating electronic medical records with um, not necessarily research in mind, but it, tracking um, and um, identification of patients with certain characteristics is, was, was quite important. Well, thank you so much for sharing that important uh, work with us, and and it's the outcomes that you've achieved in such a short period of time are really astounding. Thank you, uh, Dr. Vince Moore. I'd love to transition to you and your uh, work with Genesis Healthcare, uh, a long-term, a large long-term care provider with facilities uh, across the United States. Um, you're working with them to understand the spread of COVID within their communities. And I'd like for you to um, tell our listeners, what have you discovered in terms of some of the facility level characteristics that impact the prevalence of COVID in these communities? Sure, thanks very much, Jill. So going back to what David uh, Grabowski said at the end of his comments about data, um, we are in a data deficit right now with respect to um, who gets uh, COVID, which facilities get COVID, how much they have and what what they have done about it. And so um, early on in the pandemic, uh, I reached out to colleagues, uh, the senior leadership at Genesis uh, Healthcare has worked with both Susan and myself in the past on large pragmatic trials and have really embraced research. And so they have uh, facilities in 25 states in the country. And so we reached out to them to try to uh, see what we could do in terms of helping them understand their data. Most nursing home companies, even large ones, um, they might have a fairly robust IT system or IT group, but they have virtually never have a research group, um, particularly one that focuses on research within the own uh, the, the, the company itself. And so we knew that they were working very hard on issues related to um, the management of COVID as every day a new one of their buildings um, became had somebody was infected. And so we set up an arrangement to transfer the data from their entire electronic medical record every day and then work with them on an ongoing basis, weekly, bi-weekly meetings to actually understand the questions they're asking, what they need to make operational decisions, and then how then we would work together, to, my, uh, my, my colleagues and I would work together with them to come up with analyses to make that possible. So it's, um, we were working with them to help them solve their particular issues and challenges to interpret their data in that sense. So in that sense, 
they called on us. We made a, an arrangement together to um, to help them solve a real pressing problem, which I think is a very important uh, solution, and it continues to work well. So the first thing we did was to try to understand which one of their uh, buildings across the country ended up having a conversion to somebody, some patient becoming positive. Well, um, the press has actually really maligned many nursing homes because of the fact that they were they failed in their in their mission to protect their patients. What we see in the data is that if you're in a nursing home uh, in a county which has a high number of positive COVID cases per 100,000 population, you're much, much more likely to have a, a positive COVID case, first from the staff and then almost always followed by, uh, by patients. Um, it, so that population density as well, because urban centers and across the United States have been the hardest hit initially with, uh, uh, um, with, with COVID. And Genesis does not have any facilities in New York. So even exclusive of New York, it's been a big issue in Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Jersey, Michigan, etc. Um, the other factor we found, which was really important as well, speaking to the structure, is that larger facilities, facilities with 200 or more beds, had a much higher uh, number of patients uh, with COVID as well as a higher likelihood. And that's again, on reflection, it's because of the traffic. As more staff come in, you increase the numerical risk for the transmission of the virus to a, a resident. And once it's in the building, it's very difficult to shut it down, partly because staff will transmit from patient to patient, and then partly because staff might also pick it up or it's on surfaces that they then transmit into the next room or the next room or the next room. So it's a very um, insidious virus in the sense that people will be shedding virus for days before they become symptomatic. So just taking somebody's temperature when they walk in the door is insufficient. And by the time particularly early in April, when a lot of this stuff was happening in many facilities, by the time a patient was tested as positive, they'd already been symptomatic for a day or so, which meant they'd been symptomatic for five, six, or seven days. And then it's two or three days until the test get back, got back from the state health department. So that's eight or nine or maybe even 10 days after the patient sort of had the, had the virus transmitted, and by that time, a lot of the buildings were positive. David gives an example of a, of a facility in Massachusetts where there was a really big challenge. A bunch of patients were positive and people were trying to figure out well, what to do. Well, they said, well, maybe we'll make some kind of uh, special wing for a, uh, uh, for a COVID-only wing. As they then did universal testing in that building, they found 60, 70% of all of the residents already were positive and no one even knew it because they were asymptomatic. So it's it's very um, a very complicated set of issues, and you need data to make uh, to make inroads in that level of understanding. It is definitely complicated, and you know you discussed um, that your future work will evaluate the practice of changing rooms or moving neighbors and roommates away from someone who tested. Um, positive and or, or is displaying symptoms and you know we've heard um, anecdotally about managing these hot and cold zones and the challenges of isolating residents and particular people living with dementia um, convincing them for example to stay in their room 
um, with redirection, restraints, antipsychotics, et cetera, to keep them in the respective rumor zone. Um, can you talk a bit about how pragmatic research can inform decision-making around these complicated issues? So, yeah, one of the things that we're doing uh, with our colleagues at Genesis is actually uh, their idea. They've actually developed what we, they call heat maps so that every day the infectious disease nurse uh, together with the medical director or the regional director would actually work out a map based out every single room in the building and they would say, they would color code who was still negative, who was positive but asymptomatic, who was positive but symptomatic, and then ultimately who had died in which rooms so that they can actually document the spread and begin to then have the information around which to make decisions as do you cohort? Do you actually take the patients who are positive and move them over into one wing where there are other positives? That is normally what you'd want to do but you actually must have, as David suggested, literally testing virtually every day because the last thing in the world you want to do is move somebody who you think is negative away to a section of the building where there is no one who has a positive case already and have that person be actually positive but asymptomatic, not yet tested, and then um, infect other people in that area. So. Any decision to actually move in the direction of cohorting within a particular building has to be accompanied by really rapid testing and knowledge so that you understand who is um, susceptible, who might benefit from a move for the whole population. Thank you for that. Um, you know, my final question for all three of you, uh, if you would, how does all this learning change nursing homes? Where should the industry and, and long-term care providers, researchers focus its next steps? Dr. Grabowski, we'll start with you. Sure. So I think there's a lot of possible research projects going forward and obviously uh, ways in which the industry might, might change in response to all this new knowledge that we're going to gain. I think I would start by saying first that a, a lot of kind of the issues right now in nursing homes really stem from the problem that that Vince just identified. That uh, it's it's not about a a few bad apples out there. It's it's really a system problem, and we need to invest in the system. And I think that the first place is really in terms of what we pay for nursing home care. We've underinvested in these services for a long time. Remember, Medicaid is the dominant payer of of services in this country. We have paid below costs in most states for quite a long time. And I've, and Vince and Susan and others have argued, we, we get what we pay for. And so we really need to invest a lot more in, in these buildings. Uh, granted, more, more spending wouldn't have prevented COVID, but I think it would really fortify our, our response right now. Uh, I think these facilities are really struggling, not just in terms of the health of the residents, the, the morale of the staff, but also just the financial health of the entire industry. And so I think at a high level, we're going to need to, we're going to, need to really start uh, supporting uh, nursing homes a lot more going forward. I, I hope then, going back to what I said earlier, I think supporting the staff, a lot of those dollars that flow into the sector need to go to those direct caregivers. We've once again undervalued them and underpaid them for a long time. And so putting a lot more dollars in, into that workforce is, is, is really going to be central. And then the final thing is kind of, we, we're going to have to go back. We had made some real strides in nursing homes in terms of improving quality of life for the residents. 
this has been a huge step back. We've had residents living isolated in their in their rooms here for for going on what six weeks now. Uh, that's been incredibly sad and maybe a an underreported and undercovered part of this this story of how do we make certain that we connect these residents with their families, with, with their life once again. And I know we're all making sacrifices right now. If we think our life is limited right now, imagine if you were an older adult in a nursing home. So some of that is going to happen virtually, but how do we ensure that we kind of re-engage uh, nursing home residents with the communities that they live in? And I think we were, we'd, we'd made some strides there, but we've made some huge step back steps back in Kind of the spirit or in, 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 as a way of kind of fighting this virus, I think we need to once again begin to push towards a better quality of life for the residents. So those, those, are, some, those are some thoughts. And they're good ones. I, I love the idea that we, you know, we must not allow this kind of the uh, cre- institutionalized creep back into uh, nursing home life after so much progress um, in so- some ways. Doctors uh, Moore and Mitchell, anything to add in terms of where we need to focus next? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I echo a lot of uh, what David said as, you know, I hope this does bring a lot of attention to the plight of nursing homes in general, and particularly when they're stressed like this, so that when we watch these clips, sometimes with Dr. Grabowski on them in the nightly news, um, describing what's going on in nursing homes, that people are looking at, the, at that and saying, you know, that could be me, that could be my wife, that could be my, my parent, and um, really um, translate some of the need we see the nursing homes have into opportunity for improving that care and pushing more resources to nursing homes I think it also really highlights um, the health inequities um, in healthcare in general and also within nursing homes that I hope spurns on more attention. And just with relation to the project I did, I think, again, this really underscores uh, the need for advanced care planning, not just in the worst of times, but in the best of times. And um, I'm sort of curious to see what happens after uh, COVID uh, settles down and uh, some of these folks who've had a, a deeper conversation around uh, advanced care planning, whether they'll actually uh, continue on with the decisions they made, for example, not to hospitalize and receive care on site. And and for those that do want to continue to have their care focused on comfort at the nursing home, I hope this crisis potentiates uh, a much needed improvement in palliative care services that can be um, obtained right on site in nursing homes. Jill, let me just uh, say, bring tie these two topics together that uh, David and, and Susan uh, raised. So, in the hospital and healthcare systems world, people talk now about learning healthcare systems. Uh, the organization where Susan works at Hebrew Senior Life, they have a research organization, and the provider groups, the physicians, the nursing groups, as well as as indicated by the example, they learn from the researchers, and the researchers in turn learn from them by by engaging in pragmatic and practical everyday research, trying to answer real world questions. We actually need that to be broadly, more broadly institutionalized in the nursing home environment. Not every nursing home is going to become a learning, a learning organization, but they can do much better if they're, if the staff are treated professionally, we're paying people better, and there are proper alignments so that they're able to ask a question that's not just, 
you know, how do I get paid tomorrow? But how do I care most about the, the care provided to our, our residents, our patients, our charges? And understanding the value of research and knowledge in that process and knowledge generation that they participate in generating and knowledge and integration that they take new knowledge and adopt it in, in their places, in their places of work. That's sort of a goal, and in some sense, that's one of the goals of our impact collaboratory is to actually work with healthcare systems that are willing to and are able to integrate and adopt new innovations and incorporate them into the workflow so that they become part of the DNA of the organization. That's in the ideal world, and if if the conditions are right, we hope to help shape that in the future. So thank you very much. Well, Dr. David Grabowski, Dr. Susan Mitchell, Dr. Vince Moore, thank you so much uh, for your time today. Uh, thank you so much for your work. Please keep up the good fight. And uh, we're certainly sending our best to people living and working in nursing homes uh, all days, but especially during this uh, COVID pandemic. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Joe. Thank you for listening to today's Impact Collaboratory Grand Rounds podcast. Please be on the lookout for our next Grand Rounds and podcast next month.